Welcome to our new series called Faith for Dummies. I don't think you're a dummy. Look at someone and say, you're not a dummy. No one thinks you're a dummy. Well, I can't guarantee that, right? Maybe there might be some who do. But So why have we called this Faith for Dummies? Well, in the 1990s, there was a very popular book series called For Dummies, where they broke down a variety of topics, anything you could think of. There was uh, Fishing for Dummies and Computers for Dummies, and Taxes for Dummies, which is a book I still think I should probably buy and read, uh, Psychology for Dummies, and these were sold like all around the world, and basically what they would do is they would take a complicated topic or idea and break it down into understandable bite-sized chunks. And so that's my hope in this series, and we're going to do the same thing. We want to take some things about our faith that can seem sometimes a little bit complicated, And hopefully we can break it down into bite-sized chunks so we can all kind of grapple with these things and and understand them. And really, I want to speak to two different groups of people in the room. One group of people, you might identify yourself as someone who's like new to the faith or exploring Christianity. Maybe you're an unbeliever or a non-believer or an atheist. Or maybe you say like, I've kind of just joined this thing. I'm a baby Christian. So if that's you, if you would put yourself in that category, this series is definitely for you because I think what it's going to do is help you answer some of the big questions about our faith that maybe you've been too scared to ask or maybe you didn't even know to ask or some of the things that might have been bothering you about Christianity or the faith. But then there's also a second group of people. Maybe you'd put yourself in the second category and that's for all the mature believers those who've been Christians for a while, maybe you'd say you're a growing Christian. I really think this series is also for you. You know why I say that? One of the main reasons we don't share our faith is because we're scared of what people might say or the questions they might ask if we tried. Like, and we have this fear, like, what if I try share my faith and they say this? What if they ask me this question? And so, The fear of all these kind of complicated questions paralyzes us and silences us. And so we decide just to kind of keep quiet about our faith. And so this series is definitely for you because what I hope it will do is equip our growing and mature believers and make you a little bit more confident in sharing your faith. Now, for the record, I don't think there's a problem. If you're ever speaking to someone about Jesus or Christianity, I don't think there's a problem for you to say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. But let me go find out for you, and I'll get back to you, and then actually get back to them, right? There's no problem in doing that. But I think what a series like this does is it kind of gives us a few tools. It gives us a a few things that can increase our confidence in sharing the gospel. So my hope is this. My hope is no matter what category you're in, whether you're an unbeliever or a new believer, whether you're a mature believer or a growing Christian, my hope is that you're going to take some stock of these tools. In fact, I want to encourage you in this series to make some notes. You have full permission to whip out your phone, just ignore the notification for Instagram, right? Ignore the WhatsApps, ignore the emails, but if you want to take out your phone, make some notes so you can even use a church app, all the notes already laid out there for you, or maybe a bit more old school, please take out a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil And you can jot some of these things down because there's going to be a lot of information that's going to come at you in this series. 
And I hope that some of this information we can digest, we can memorize, so that at the right time, we can give an answer when we're asked these questions. And so to start off the series, I want to talk about this good book called the Bible. In fact, I've titled today, The Bible for Dummies. Now, this is undoubtedly the most influential and powerful book in the history of mankind. There is nothing that even comes close. The Bible has changed the world more than any other book in the history of humanity, without a doubt. The Bible has been the best-selling book of all time, and it's the best-selling book of the year, every year, since it started making the best-selling list. More than 100 million copies of the Bible are sold or donated every single year. 100 million copies. Nothing rivals it. Also, this book that tells you, by the way, not to steal, happens to be the most stolen book in the world every year. How ironic is that? Now, what some people don't realize is that even unbelievers consistently quote the Bible. It is so, it, it's had such an impact on society, such an impact on our speech, on culture and pop culture, that it's ingrained into how we speak. People just don't realize that they speak in the Bible. Let me give you some ideas of some of the sayings and the idioms that actually come from the Bible. The blind leading the blind. Well, that's from Matthew 15, 14. It's just a drop in the bucket. Well, that's from Isaiah 40, 15. By the skin of your teeth. Well, that's actually from Job 19, 20. You know, the writings on the wall. Well, that's from Daniel 5. It's a labor of love. Well, that's from 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. I'm gonna go the extra mile. Well, that's from Matthew 5, 41. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's from Matthew 7, 15. Rise and shine. Well, that comes from Isaiah 60, verse 1. I'm at my wit's end, man. Well, that's from Psalm 107, verse 27. And that's just to name a few. The, the verses in the Bible have so bled through culture and what we say and how we say it that without a doubt, people are quoting, even unbelievers, even atheists, they're using the Bible the whole time. How cool. I mean, this is the kind of impact that it's had on society. But with such a powerful book comes a lot of questions. With a book that had this much impact on society comes a lot of questions. Questions like, where did this come from? Who wrote this? Who decided these books should be in the Bible? What about the other religious books that weren't put in the Bible? Why were some chosen and some left out? What do I do with the ones that were left out? Why should I even trust this? And so those are some of the questions I'm hoping to answer today. So let's jump in. What is the Bible? Well, first of all, the Bible isn't a book. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a span of around 1,500 years. The earliest writings in the Bible started at around 1,500 BC, before the birth of Christ. And the last writings of the Bible take place at around 100 AD, 100 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. And this has a variety of authors. These authors were, some were prophets, some were kings, some were fishermen, 
some were tax collectors, some were leaders, Christian leaders, some were poets. And it was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And all these authors, these 40 authors who wrote these 66 books over 1,500 years tell all the same beautiful story. In fact, there isn't another piece of text that is this historically backed up than the Bible. We have over 5,000 written manuscripts of the Bible throughout the times. 5,000 either fully intact manuscripts or part of a manuscript, and they all fall within a 99% accuracy of each other. There is no other piece of historical text that is this copied and, and this verified than the Bible. In fact, all these 5,000 texts, all the 1% the, the of differences are just in grammar or in sentence structure or in, in how the, the rules of sentences changed over those thousands of years. It is incredibly backed up and verified. In fact, what we know to be true is even in the language of the Bible, we know some of these oldest manuscripts were written by Moses and Job. There's a lot of kind of debate of who wrote the oldest book. But what we do know in Exodus 34 verse 27, we see Moses being commanded by God to write down what God was telling him. It says there, then the Lord said to Moses, write down all these instructions for they represent the terms of the covenant that I'm making with you and Israel. Now, we're reading that today in English, but you got to think, what was this original language written in? When we look into it, we see the original letters, the original manuscripts were written in the language of the day called Hebrew. Everyone say Hebrew. Hebrew was the Jewish language of the day. And so the entire Old Testament, which is a portion of the Bible before Jesus, was written in Hebrew. And along with Hebrew, we see there was another language of the day becoming quite popular, a language called Aramaic. Everyone say Aramaic. So we see Aramaic, as it becomes more and more popular, bleeding into that Old Testament text. In fact, we see the, a few chapters of prophecy written in Aramaic, in the original language, from the books of Ezra and Daniel, and ironically, one verse in the book of Jeremiah is written in this Aramaic language. So what was happening over these 1,500 years that the Bible was being written, the Jewish people started to lose their Hebrew tongue. And they started to speak more and more Aramaic. And this started to bother the Jews and the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. So around 300 years before Jesus was born, the Jewish leaders started to do the, make the first ever translation of that Hebrew text into a more popular language, which was Greek. And it took them about 100 years to do this. And so at around 200 BC, we have the first ever fully-fledged translation of the Bible from the Hebrew into the Greek. And it was now called, we refer to that Greek translation of the Bible as a Septuagint. Everyone say Septuagint. The Septuagint is the first ever translation of the Bible from the Hebrew to the Greek completed in 200 BC. 
And this Septuagint started to become very adopted. It was very accepted. In fact, it started to become what was read in the synagogues because the Jewish people no longer understood the Hebrew. They no longer read or wrote in the Hebrew. And so as we see time go on, we see that Aramaic becomes a more and more popular language. Actually, what we know is that Aramaic was actually the language of Jesus' day and time. He would live and speak and write in the Aramaic. And so as the early church fathers started to write letters to the churches and make the New Testament, guess what language they wrote to the churches in? It wasn't Aramaic. (laughs) When they started to write the New Testament, they wrote in Greek. Now, why would they write in Greek and not the common language of the day, Aramaic? Well, the reason they wrote in Greek is because Greek was the language of the scholars from AD 50 to 100. So when you were writing a scholarly letter, you would write it in the Greek. But they would often quote the Aramaic that Jesus would use in the words of the cross or his word in different miracles. And so even today in our text, often when we're quoting from that original text, we're still seeing and reading the Aramaic that Jesus spoke because that's the language that he used. And so all three languages become part of this one Bible. We see some of it in the original Hebrew, some of it in the original Aramaic, and the New Testament written in Greek. And all these copies of the Bible, all these original manuscripts back up each other. All these original language, all these original manuscripts, even the ones we found recently, We found a whole stash of manuscripts that were 900 years older than anything we had found before with the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found these 80 years ago in 1947. And if you are planning on going to Israel next year with us, hopefully you're going to get to see those in person. We, by faith, are still planning that trip to Israel. We'll know in January for sure if the trip is still on or not. But here's what we know. Even when we found those manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were 900 years older than anything we had before, we still found that even those manuscripts were exactly what we have today within 99% accuracy. And so you and I can know for sure, church, we can know for sure that the words we are using of the Old Testament are the same words that the prophets had, the same words that the apostles would have read the same words that the early church would have read. We can know with confidence that this, this word is truly the word of God. And contrary to popular belief, it's never changed. And I want to remind you, there has never been more than one Bible. There is only one Bible. And as you read and interact with people in the world, and I know this because I'm on TikTok and I do like religious content, and I see their comments and I'm like, you guys, You've got it so wrong because what people said is like, hey, when are you going to release the next update of the Bible? Right? And there's so many Bibles out there and you, you guys keep changing it and you keep updating it. And how can you believe in it if it keeps on changing? Well, the reality is the Bible has never, ever changed. The Bible's never changed. It's never been updated and it's never been rewritten. That old Ancient text, the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic has always stayed the same. And even when it's been copied, it's always stayed within the 99% accuracy. It's amazing how supported it is. But what's happened is over the years, that ancient Hebrew, that Greek, that Aramaic, 
It's been translated into many different languages. And this is where the confusion has come in. You see, over the years, different groups of people have gone to that original text and they've tried to translate it into more modern languages so that more people can understand it. That's why today we have an English Bible. But of course, as different groups have gone back to that text, they come up with different translations. And that's just how translating works, guys. If I were to take a page out of an Afrikaans novel and then hand it to everyone in this room and ask you all to translate that into English, what would we find? I would find 400 different translations of that original text. Why? Because as you're translating from the Afrikaans, you have to decide which English words are you going to use to describe that Afrikaans word? Which English phrases are you going to use? How are you going to make the language structure, right? All these things. And so there's no ways we will all choose the same words and language structure and grammar. And so what we've seen is as different groups of people have come to that original text, they've come up with different translations. In my hand right now, I have the New Living Translation. Some of you maybe have read from the NIV or the ESV or the Amplified Bible, but it's all pointing to the same original text. It's all from the same original text. We all have the same Bible. We just have different Bible translations. Some of these translations were written long ago, even the English ones. The King James Version, for example, was translated in the 1600s. How many of you know language in the 1600s sounds very different than the language you speak today? Have you ever tried to read Shakespeare? You ever read Shakespeare and you're like, what on earth are they saying? What, is this even English? Right, and then you take the King James Bible that was translated at around the same time and you're like, what are they even saying? Right, why? Well, because language has changed. And that's why we constantly have people going back to the original language and trying to find a more modern way to say it so that people can understand it. But it's all the same Bible. It's never changed. It's never been updated. It's never been rewritten. There is only one Bible. So who decided what should even be in here? Who decided which book should make it and which one shouldn't? Well, it wasn't one person, and it wasn't one organization, and it wasn't one council. When we call something inspired by God, when we say that a book belongs in the Bible, what we call that is canon. Everyone say canon, like when you shoot a canon, say canon. Okay, so when we consider a book to be worthy of scripture, to be, to be say, this book is God's word. What we mean is that this now belongs in the Bible canon. But who decides? And who decided which of these 66 books should be canon? Well, that process took many centuries and many very serious biblical scholars who prayed and debated and researched and studied to determine which books should become canon. You can almost see it as like an ancient very smart book club of people who got together and they didn't do this quickly. It took a long time to determine which books should be canon. In fact, 
it was a lot easier for them to reach consensus when it came to the Old Testament books of the Bible, the books before Jesus, that Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic text. And so we see a council getting together in around 250 AD, 250 years after the birth of Jesus. They got together and they had finally settled only 250 years after Jesus, what should be considered the Old Testament canon. What was the inspired word of God? And biblical scholars got together, the Hebrew writers and scholars got together, they reached consensus after praying and debating and researching. But there was one issue. This was a collection of books called the Apocrypha. Everyone say Apocrypha. Some of you might be familiar with the Apocrypha, especially if you come from the Catholic faith, because the Apocrypha books are still part of the Catholic Bible. And so there was a lot of, kind of resistance about should the Apocrypha be included in the canon? Should it be seen as holy and inspired scripture, the words of the living God? And in 250 AD, these Hebrew scholars all agreed. The Apocrypha is not the inspired word of God. Why? Well, because there was errors in the Apocrypha and there were contradictions in the Apocrypha. And if we are saying something is inspired by God himself, then we're saying it's free of errors and free of contradiction. And so while the Apocrypha could be enlightening, we should see it as maybe good religious text, but we should not see it as the inspired word of God. It is not God-inspired text, even though it might be good text, and some of it might even be accurate. We cannot put it at the same level as the Hebrew scriptures that we find in the Old Testament. Now, for the New Testament, it took a bit longer for them to decide which books should be canon. And we see this process already starting in the early church. Now, you might not know this, but we already see in the writings to these early churches between the apostles and disciples that they started recognizing each other's letters as scripture. We see this play out in several places. I'll pull out two examples. For example, Paul referred to Luke's writing as scripture when he wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul said, for the scripture says, then he quotes from two places. First, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. You must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, Paul says, but then he quotes from the New Testament book of Luke. And so we see Paul referring to Luke's writing as scripture. He says, those who work deserve their pay. That is a quote, not from Deuteronomy or anywhere in the Old Testament. That is a quote from the New Testament book of Luke. We see the same thing happening with Peter. Peter recognized Paul's writings as scripture. And 2 Peter 3.15 says, And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. What? With the wisdom that God gave him. Peter was recognizing Paul's writings as inspired by God. He said, speaking all of these things in all of his letters. We also know that some of these letters were being circulated, not just to one church, but they were actually being circulated amongst the early church. Here's two examples, Colossians 4.16. Paul said, after you've read this letter, pass it to the church at Laodicea so that they can read it too. And you should read the letter that I wrote them. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, it says, I command you in the name of the Lord 
to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. And so we could see that even amongst the apostles and disciples of the early church, they started to recognize that the letters that they had been receiving and reading were in fact inspired by God and at the same level of scripture. And so that really started the process of canonizing the New Testament. And so we get to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, 325 years after the birth of Jesus, about 100, almost 150 years after they had canonized the Old Testament, this council at Nicaea started to determine and started the conversations as what should be canon in the New Testament. What of these religious books should we see as inspired scripture? And it wasn't a quick conversation. In fact, it would take a lot of years and they were trying to hold up these letters to a few points. Number one, they wanted to know, was the author an apostle or at least closely associated with one of the apostles? Number two, was a book adapted and accepted by the local church at large? Number three, did the book fall consistently with what was taught about God, his nature, his character, his plan for humanity that we already knew of him from the Old Testament? And number four, was there evidence of high moral standards? Was there evidence of a high spiritual standard which showed the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life? And so this Conversation went on for centuries. They met again at the Council of Rome in 382 AD. A lot of prayer, a lot of thought went into this. And then finally, the undisputed canon was only settled at a place of Carthage in 397 AD, almost 400 years after the birth of Christ. We finally came up to the Bible we had today. But a big issue as they were trying to canonize the New Testament there was another set of books, just like the Apocrypha with the Old Testament. There was also this set of books in the New Testament as I was going through all these letters. There was a group of books called the, as we refer to it today, the Pseudepigrapha. Everyone say Pseudepigrapha. The Pseudepigrapha is another collection of books that was written alongside the time of these letters we're, write, we're reading today. They were written around 300 AD, I mean, BC to around 200 AD in that 500 year period. Now, the problem with the pseudepigrapha is what started to be revealed was all these letters supposedly written by these Old Testament biblical characters. And the reason it's called the pseudepigrapha is because in the Greek, it means the false letters or the letters of pretense, because actually these letters were written falsely under these biblical characters' names and so they would use these names like Abraham or Enoch or Noah. And they would say, this is a book of this person. But actually, they were just pretending to write that in the hopes that these books would be accepted by society and accepted by the church. And so there's a whole collection of books that make part of the pseudepigrapha. There's over 50 books. And they all use the titles of these Old Testament characters. Books like the Testament of Hezekiah, the Vision of Isaiah, the Books of Enoch. The Secrets of Enoch, the Book of Noah, the Testament of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Peter, and many others. There's over, over 50 titles in this pseudepigrapha. But it is fully agreed that these do not make up the biblical canon, that these are not in the level of Scripture. They are not inspired by God. And why is it agreed? Well, these books are full of historical inaccuracies, right? They do... 
They're full of mistakes when it comes to just historical matters. They're full of contradictions. They're full of errors. And some of them even contain heresy. For example, if you were to go read the Acts of John, this is what it would tell you about Jesus. It says that Jesus was a phantom. It was actually just a spirit that as he walked on sand, he left no footprints, that no one could actually touch him and that he did not actually die on the cross. So we know that is complete heresy and completely inconsistent with all of scripture. Paul, while he was writing to the letters, the letters to the churches, he was already struggling with a pseudepigrapher because there were people even copying Paul. There were people writing letters to the early church claiming to be Paul. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but in Paul's letters to the churches, he's often saying, hey guys, this is really me. And he would sign the letters in his own handwriting. I'm going to show you just one example from the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 317. Some of your Bibles will have this all in caps. Why? Because this is evidence of a different handwriting. This was Paul himself saying, here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. And I do this to all my letters to prove they are from me. Okay, Paul was saying, hey, this is really me. This is not a counterfeit. So be careful. If you don't see this, this is part of the pseudepigrapher. This is not a letter from me. And so it took a lot of time for biblical scholars to siphon through all these different letters and really ask God, God, what is part of your canon inspired word? And what is part of the apocrypha or the pseudepigrapher? And so that took a long time for that to finally get to what we call the Bible today. And so I want to remind you, there are no lost books of the Bible. There's no hidden books of the Bible. There are only rejected books of the Bible. And so what do you do with books like the book of Enoch, which has become very popular to read? What do you do with these books that form part of the epigrapha or the pseudepigrapha? Well, I want to say if it's part of the epigrapha, we don't say that those books are wrong. Those Old Testament books can give you a lot of historical context and insight, show you what's happening in those days. And that could be an interesting read. But I don't know if I would really recommend that you read the books that form part of the pseudepigrapha because they are false books written under fake names. And if you really want to read those ancient texts, at least read them with the lens that it's just fiction. It's just make-believe. And don't put any weight to it because the amount of conversations I've had with Christians who have come to me with a book like the book of Enoch and said, hey, look at what it shows you about God. I want to remind you, no, that's just make-believe. Those are fake books written under fake names. Put no weight to them. They do not form parts definitely of the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. And so it's really crucial that we remember this one thing. There was no person and no council and no organization that decided what should be canon. The one who decided what is canon is God himself. God decided what is inspired and canon. And then over the years, he was revealing that to his followers. He was revealing that to his children. He was revealing them as they prayed and as they sought him, as they lent into his voice. He was revealing to them what should form part of the Bible as we know it today. And so we know this good book is fully complete. We know it's complete. There's not going to be any additions to the Bible. It starts in Genesis with the beginning of humanity. It ends in Revelation with the end of humanity 
And in between, it gives you everything you need, it tells us, for life and godliness. You have everything you need. There's nothing missing. And to suggest that we would need to add a book or add something now to the Bible would suggest that there's something missing. It would suggest that this is incomplete, but it's not incomplete. We read this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. To suggest there's something missing would mean that you don't have what you need right now to be equipped to do every good work. And let me remind you of what the final verses of the book of Revelation say. Now, we know these verses at the end of Revelation are actually only really for the book of Revelation, but it does show you something about God's heart when it comes to his inspired word. And here's what we read in Revelation 22, verse 18 to 19. And I solemnly declare that everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything that's written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in the book. No, thank you. If anyone removes any of these words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. No, thank you, right? What it shows us is we don't mess with God's inspired word. And so we know that what we have is all that we need. In these 66 books is everything you need. There isn't a single situation in this life that you cannot find direction for, helpful, guidance for from this book. What begun in Genesis concludes in Revelation. Now I want to end with this. Why trust this? Why trust these 66 books? Why trust the canon of scripture? I want to give you four reasons. Number one. Fulfilled prophecy. Everyone say fulfilled prophecy. There is no other religious book in the world with fulfilled prophecy. There is a lot of religious texts that have prophecy, but nothing that is fulfilled like the Bible. Again, we have evidence, and it's not even disputed, even in secular fields. We have evidence of these manuscripts dating back 1,500 years before Jesus Christ. And in these manuscripts are prophecies, prophecies about the future, prophecies about kings and battles and lands. And we see in these manuscripts with people who weren't connected to each other, who didn't know each other, who lived on different continents, how these prophecies come true. In fact, just in the life of Jesus Christ, there are over 300 prophecies that point to him and every single one of them is fulfilled. That is statistically impossible to happen by chance impossible it's undisputed proof that behind all of this was a single author that behind all of this was supernatural activity guiding all of these letters the fact that these prophecies were written not after the fact but before the fact and that we see them come true is remarkable completely supernatural which brings me to the second reason you can trust the bible And that is the unity of Scripture. Look at someone and say, it's unified. It is incredible the kind of unity that happens in Scripture. And again, no one could have planned this. No one got all 40 of these authors together and said, okay, right, somehow someone's going to be in control that for the next 
one and a half thousand years, we're going to like plan this, this person in Africa, this person that's in Asia, this person that's in Europe, and we're going to somehow get them to write the same story. No, these guys didn't know each other. They didn't meet. And yet they all tell the same story about an incredible God. There is no contradiction and there's no error in their stories. In fact, what we see more than anything else is they back each other up and they reference each other. You guys have probably seen this diagram before that I want to put up now. It just shows you all the ways the books of the Bible reference each other. Every line that you see there on that graph is a reference from one book to another book. That is supernatural. And the only one who could have planned that is God, the God who existed outside of time, the God that was with Moses and Job all the way to John, the God who was actually pulling the strings all the while behind the scenes, telling this one grand story. The only way that kind of referencing can happen is if there's in fact one author and not 40 authors. This is why when you're reading the Bible, you'll see a little asterisk and you go to the bottom of the page and it gives you the reference for where this verse speaks to another verse in the Bible. It is incredibly planned and united and detailed. No other book in the history of the world is like this. With this many different kinds of people, it's supernatural. It is proof of the inerrancy and the sovereignty of scripture. That is supernatural, guys. Third reason you can trust this book is because the characters in it are flawed. Like you and me. If this was a sales pitch, if this was just trying to talk about some great gimmicky thing, it would make people heroes and puff them up and make them look larger than life, make it look unattainable. But instead, the Bible highlights people's flaws. It takes a person like David and says, this person is a man after God's own heart and then tells us that this person commits adultery and murder. And it just keeps on pointing that yes, we are flawed, but there is a savior who in spite of our sin and flaws loves us and is coming for us and will redeem us. It doesn't highlight or puff up any person. It only puffs up Jesus Christ. It only highlights God. And the fourth reason you and I can trust this is because of archeological discoveries. Guys, as they go and discover things, Archaeology keeps on saying, science keeps on saying, this isn't true and this didn't happen. And then you just wait a while and they uncover something else or they dig up something else and they say, oh, okay, it does happen. And it is true. And time and time again, as science comes against the word of God, archaeology just keeps on proving that everything it says is true. And it's one thing to say, oh, this didn't happen, but you've got to prove it didn't happen because we can prove it did. There is scientific archaeology backing for everything you read in scripture. And so here's what we know, that in fact, even though there was 40 human authors over 1,500 years, the Bible ultimately has one author, and that is God. That he inspired all of this writing. He inspired all of these people to write all these different books so that you and I could know about him and learn him and follow him and you might be wondering, well, how did that happen? If we're saying God wrote this book, what does it look like? Does it mean like he possesses people? Like, you know, um, Matthew was just minding his own business, doing his taxes, and then God like possessed him. Right? He was like, went and got the quill. It's like, what's happening? What's happening? And his quill like dipped in the ink and it's like, 
well, what's happening to me? God, what are you doing? Like, no, let me tell you, that's not what happens at all. God does not possess you. He never does. That's a sign of the devil. There's never possession of God. In fact, God gives you free will. He doesn't take the gift away. One of the fruits and evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life is that you'll have self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. There is no possession of the Holy Spirit. God never possesses you. And so then how did he write the Bible? If we're saying he's the author, but he doesn't possess people, how does that work? Well, it's something called inspiration. Everyone say inspiration. We believe that the, the scriptures are holy because they were inspired by God, which means God linked on to someone. He partnered with them, just like he does in our life today. He nudged them. He led them. And he chose them on purpose. He didn't try sidestep their personality, their use of grammar, their backgrounds, their ideas. No, he infused his spirit with their personality and background. That's why as you're reading scripture, you can pick up the personality of Peter and you can see how John viewed Jesus. And you can kind of see the personality of Paul in his writings because God partnered with all these people by design so that ultimately what ended up on this page was a perfect will of God was a perfect word of God. This is exactly how God intended it to be. He used their personalities and their experiences and their background on purpose so that you and I could have the book we have today. Peter describes how this works. He says this in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy ever originated because some man willed it. To do so, it never came by human impulse. But men spoke from God who were born along or moved or impelled by the Holy Spirit. This is a holy book because it's the only book in the world inspired by God. It is the only book in the world that is the living word of God. There is no other book like it. That's why it has shaped and impacted society as much as it has. And you might be thinking, okay, that's great. We can trust it, we can believe in it, but I don't know how to read it. I don't understand it. Well, don't worry, we got you covered because in this series, we'll be doing a week called Quiet Time for Dummies, right? And maybe we wanna help you. We wanna show you like, how do you study this? How do you read it? How do you absorb it? How do you process it? How do you apply it? And just to be really real and transparent with you guys, I've been a pastor now almost 20 years. I'm the senior pastor of a church and still today, there are things that I read where I'm like, what is it saying? Still today, there are parts of this text that come along and I'm like, I don't understand this. But you know what I do in those moments? I just say, Holy Spirit, when you're ready, can you reveal it to me? In the meantime, I'm just going to keep on reading because I know there will be something I do understand. And so I want to encourage you, even though you might not understand every word, every phrase, every situation, just read it. You know why? because there's no other book that's alive. Remember what it said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that this word is alive and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. All you've got to do is read it and it will change you. It's all you've got to do, just read. Even if you don't understand it, your spirit knows what's happening. Just get it in you. It will change you. Just read it. Pick it up and read it. Read it consistently and it will move you. It will shape you. 
It will reform you. There's no other book in the world that's alive. This book is alive. These words will impact and change your life if you just read them. That's all, oh, the only work you've got to do. Just read them. Get them in. It has a life of its own. It will do the work for you. Just get it in. And so my prayer today really is maybe for some of you who have been doubting the authenticity of this book, that you would see that this is a book written by God as he inspired men over 1,500 years to tell one overarching story. It's supernatural how this thing has come together, that there is over 5,000 manuscripts. It is the most supported document in the history of the world. Nothing like it. And for those of you who have been Christians for a while, that maybe you've kind of lost your taste for this, you've lost your interest, I pray that you would be reminded today there's only one book that's inspired. There's only one book that's alive. It's this one. May our hunger for this book increase daily. May we be drawn to the Word of God. There's nothing that will change you like this Word of God. In fact, that's what I want to pray for you right now. Can I invite you to pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. It's beautiful. Lord, there's nothing like it. Nothing like the living word. I thank you, God, that you've given this to us. I thank you, God, that it can shape us and move us and reform us. And God, I want to pray for your church. I pray, God, for those who have tried to read it and walked away and they felt like, God, they can't understand it. It's not for them. Lord, would you increase their understanding? Holy Spirit, would you speak to them and guide them, lead them to the right kind of translation, Lord, that they can really understand and grasp. Father, I pray that your word, that, that it would be like honey on our lips, that we would seek more of it. We would want more of it. We would want to consume it, God. And as we do that, may it just change us, Lord, from the inside out. May it reshape us and reform us and rework us. So God, I pray, increase our hunger increase our desire, increase our willingness to come to your word. And Father, as we do that, I pray that we would truly see that your word is true, that it really does change us. May we be a Bible-reading, Bible-believing community of Christians who are passionate, Lord, about knowing you more, passionate, Lord, about reading your word, passionate, Lord, about putting you first in our lives, I pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.